Bibles in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 16. Now, um, I um, I was preaching one time, and uh, uh, it was an outdoor service. I want to say it was probably a graveside funeral service, and um, uh, I was using my iPad as my Bible, and afterwards there was a dear lady that... Um, rebuked me and she said I, I like a preacher who uses a real Bible <laughs> and uh, so uh, whether you have a real Bible or you have it like I do on your iPhone or your iPad open to Matthew chapter 16 and we're going to read here in just a moment some very uh, well-known and I would say immortal words from the lips of Jesus stand with me if you would as we read from Matthew's Gospel, chapter 16, and we'll begin our reading in verse number 13. When Jesus came into the coast of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, saying, Whom do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? And they said, Some say that you're John the Baptist, others Elijah, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He said unto them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered and said, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered and said unto him, Blessed art thou, Simon, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed it unto you, but my Father which is in heaven. And I say also unto you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Let's pray. Father, bless your word today as we open it, as we expound it. And Lord, may you speak to us, edify your people, exalt your son, Lord, and draw people to you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Uh, Jesus is two and a half years into his ministry here at this time in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 16. Two and a half years of ministry, and he's about six months away from going to the cross. And so he is here in Caesarea Philippi preparing his disciples for that eventuality. He takes them north to the, really the furthest area north in Jerusalem. As far as I know, the only time he and his disciples ventured into this area uh, to a place called Caesarea Philippi. It was named for Caesar Tiberius and uh, the Tetrarch Philip son of Herod the Great, who you may remember from the Christmas story and uh, uh, the Herod that uh, tried to kill Jesus. This, to this place, Jesus brings his disciples and he here makes what would become an immortal statement about himself and his church. Now, to set this up, Jesus asked his disciples two questions. The first question was, who do people say that I am? Look at verse 13. He says, who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? Well, they answered and said, well, some people say you're John the Baptist. Now, this was a popular theory at the time. It was promoted by Herod Antipas, who was the brother of Philip after whom this town was named. In Matthew's Gospel, chapter 14, we read these words. At that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard of the fame of Jesus and said unto his servants, this is John the Baptist. He's risen from the dead. Therefore, mighty works do show forth themselves 
in him. This is the, the, the man who had John put into prison for uh, telling him that it was unlawful for him to have his brother Philip's wife. And so uh, Herod um, Antipas began the idea that, well, this Jesus that I'm hearing about, it must be John the Baptist risen from the dead. Others said, no, it's Elijah. He's Elijah the prophet. Because in the Old Testament, in the book of Malachi, the very last words in the Old Testament, before those 400 what we call silent years, before John shows up in the wilderness preaching the kingdom of heaven, the last prophet in the Old Testament, Malachi, said these words, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord, and he shall turn the heart of the fathers to the children and the heart of the children to their fathers, lest I come and smite the earth with a curse. Period. End of Old Testament. Those were the last words of the prophets. In Malachi, uh, God spoke through him said, I'm going to send you Elijah. So there were those in Jesus' day said, this is Elijah. He's prophesied to come. He's here. Others said, no, it's Jeremiah. Jeremiah. And I'm not sure exactly why they chose Jeremiah. Um, there's no prophecy that I know of that says Jeremiah is returning. But Jeremiah is known as the weeping prophet. Jeremiah had a soft heart for the people of God and for their sins. He wept over them. In fact, he gives us a a very good picture of this in his prophecy. Chapter 9, verse 1, where Jeremiah says, Oh, that my head were waters and my eyes a fountain of tears, that I might weep day and night for the slain of the daughter of my people. Jeremiah was the weeping prophet. And the people who knew Jesus knew that he had compassion. The Bible says when he saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion on them because they fainted and were scattered abroad as sheep not having a shepherd. Others said, well, he's obviously one of the prophets because he speaks with the authority of God. Now, these were all good men. Uh, John the Baptist, Elijah, Jeremiah, or any of the prophets were good and godly men. But And the people's responses were perhaps well-intentioned, but they were wrong. Jesus didn't ask this question to gain information. He wasn't doing a straw poll to see if he should run for Messiah. Uh, he was asking this question to set up the second question. And the second question was this. But who do you say that I am? And that by far is the most important question here. It's the most important question of all time. C.S. Lewis said, Christianity, if false, is of no importance. And if true, of infinite importance. The only thing it cannot be is moderately important. Folks, what you think of Jesus, who you believe he is, is of infinite importance. Uh, now, you can be wrong about some things. In fact, uh, I found that out just this past week after filling out my bracket for the men's basketball tournament. I found out you can be wrong about some things. In fact, uh, I don't know if you heard of this fellow, but uh, James Franklin McInvale, better known as Mattress Mac. He owns and operates a gallery furniture store chain uh, headquartered in Houston. He placed a $4 million bet 
that the Houston Cougars would win this year's NCAA tournament. Now, on Friday night, the University of Miami Hurricanes ended the Cougars' season and dashed Mattress Mac's hopes of winning $35 million. In other words, he was wrong. To the tune of $4 million. Now, I don't bet. Don't, don't get the idea that I'm filling out a bracket and I'm betting. I don't bet. I'm not a gambler. But every year in my family, we always, uh, for fun, pick the winners. Well, I've only got one team left out of 64. So I was wrong. You know, uh, 63 out of 64. I got one team left, Mike, and that's the Texas Longhorns. <laughs> and that's hard for a Sooner to do, but I picked them to win it all. And uh, don't tell my son I did this. Don't tell him to go on and watch this. He will get a kick out of that. But you know what? You can be wrong about a lot of things. And some of the things that you're wrong about don't really amount to a hill of beans. But you cannot afford to be wrong about Jesus. You see, Peter answers for the group here when Jesus said, Who do you say that I am? Peter says, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Now, folks, Jesus is not just a prophet. He's not like John the Baptist or Elijah or Jeremiah. John the Baptist was a great man. In fact, Jesus said John was the greatest man born of women. Jeremiah and the prophets were good, godly men. But Jesus is not just a good man. He is the God-man. Jesus Christ is God manifest in the flesh. And it was for that reason that the Jewish leaders sought to kill him. John 5 verse 18 tells us, Therefore the Jews sought the more to kill him because he not only had broken the Sabbath, but said that God was his father, making himself equal with God. Jesus is far more than a mere man. He's far more than a great teacher. He's far more than a prophet. He is the son of the living God. He is the reason you and I are here today. He is the reason you got up this morning. As Abby already has said, he's the breath in your lungs. He's the one who gives you life. He's the reason everyone in Georgetown was able to get up this morning. Without Jesus, we can do nothing. It really doesn't even matter if you believe in Jesus or believe that He's the Christ, the Son of the living God. It is still His breath in your lungs. It's barred from Him. Without Him, we can do nothing. He is the giver of life. John tells us all things were made by Him and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life. And the life was the light of men. Jesus literally divides history into two parts. B.C. and A.D. The time before Christ and Anno Domini in the year of our Lord. Listen, your birthday. Uh, Chris Leon, what day were you born? March 1st, what year? 1967. How do you know that? Your mom told you? How did she come up with that date, 1967? I'll tell you how she got it. She got it from Jesus. Your birthday, my birthday, every newspaper you pick up today is dated from his birthday. Don't tell me he's just a mere man. Don't tell me he's like the other prophets. Don't tell me he's like the other religious leaders. He is different. Now, in my lifetime, they've gone from... uh, 
saying B.C. and A.D. to B.C.E. and C.E. In fact, most of you youngsters in here in school, that's probably how they were, you were taught in school. Maybe, maybe not, but I'm going to assume. I looked up on the Internet to see what the uh, reason for that was, and I already pretty much knew, but I wanted to confirm it. And this is what I read. An important reason for adopting, this is under an article called Why Some People Have Adopted BCE, which is before the common era, and CE, the common era. That's where we live now. An important reason for adopting BCE slash CE is religious neutrality. Since the Gregorian calendar has superseded other calendars to become the international standard, members of non-Christian groups may object to the explicitly Christian origins of B.C. and A.D. Listen, you cannot be neutral when it comes to Jesus. He did not leave us that option. To be neutral about Jesus is to be wrong. As soon as Peter makes his confession that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, Jesus responds by saying, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, For flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father, which is in heaven. Listen, it doesn't matter who people think that Jesus is, or uh, what matters is who Jesus actually is. And the Father revealed to Peter that Jesus is the Christ, the only begotten Son of the living God. Peter's confession, folks, is the confession of salvation. Paul said in Romans chapter 10 that if you shall confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and shall believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. No one can be saved from the, from their sins who does not believe and confess that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. Look at verse number 18. He says here, And I say unto you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church. And the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Now, there's some controversy in this passage. There's no controversy within the Scriptures. But outside Scripture, there's been controversy over what Jesus said here. He says, upon this rock I will build my church. Now, when he says, upon this rock... When he, well, when he first says to Peter, he says, Peter, uh, you are Peter. He uses Peter's name there that he gave him, Petros. Petros means a stone. It's a small stone. It's a stone somewhat like my little grandson Bubba will reach down and pick up off the ground and throw into the creek behind his house. In fact... We haven't yet figured out if Bubba's right-handed or left-handed because he'll grab two stones and throw one and throw the other. I don't know why we buy him toys. It's really a waste of money. He's got all those rocks and he's perfectly happy throwing rocks. Now, when he picks up a rock, he's picking up a Petros, a small stone that he can take and throw into the creek. When Jesus says to Peter, he said, you are Peter. He's saying, you are Petros, you are a small stone. And upon this Petra, similar but not the same word. Petros is a masculine noun. Petra is a feminine noun. Petros means a small stone. 
Petra is a stone you can build on. A foundation stone. Bubba's not going to pick one of those up, John, and throw it anywhere. I'm not going to pick one up. You're not going to pick one up. In fact, this building we're in right now is sitting on top of one. Okay? It's a foundation stone. And so when Jesus said, you are Peter, and upon this rock I'll build my church, he was giving us with no uncertain terms that Peter is not the rock upon which the church is built. Peter's a small stone, but Jesus is the rock. In fact, Peter, as much as says so in his letter, 1 Peter 2, verses 3 through 8, I won't read all of them, but he says, If so be that you have tasted that the Lord is gracious to whom coming as unto a living stone. He said, Jesus is that stone. He's chosen of God, elect and precious. And then he quotes Isaiah from Isaiah 28 and says, Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect, precious, and he that believeth on him shall not be confounded. Paul echoes that in 1 Corinthians 3, and Pastor Ernest mentioned it last week in his sermon. He says, For other foundation can no man lay than that is laid, which is Jesus Christ. There could be no doubt who the rock is. Now notice here two things about Jesus' statement. He says, upon this rock, the rock that is himself, the Christ, the Son of the living God, he says, I will build my church. Number one, the church belongs to Jesus. He calls it my church. It's not your church, John. It's not my church. It's Jesus' church. And he says, upon this rock, I will build my church. Not only is it his church, but he promises to build it. Listen, the church belongs to Jesus. It is his bride. It is his body. It is his beloved. He loved the church and gave himself for it. God desires you so greatly that he sent his only begotten son to die on the cross for your sins so that you might come in and be one with him. He desires a relationship with you. He will build his church and he says the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Now, question, how does he do that? How does Christ build his church? Well, he doesn't leave us in the dark here. Look at verse number 19. He uses keys. He says here, I will give unto thee the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Now, these keys were not given to Peter only. As we read two chapters later, he mentions that the keys are given to all the disciples. Now, here recently, and keys, what what do you do with keys? I've, I've got to sit here in my pocket. I usually have them hanging on my belt, but I, I finally got tired of that and limited it just a handful so I could put them in my pocket. But a key is used to open and lock things. You use a key to lock and unlock. Recently, this past Wednesday, Mike and Dee Dee Leeds came by, and I was in the uh, um, the parlor across the street there behind the... the um, uh, the historic sanctuary, and Mike was needing to get into here in the ministry center, but he didn't have his keys with him. 
And so I said, well, Mike, I've got mine right here if you want to take my key. And so my, I gave Mike the key, and he was able to come over here and unlock the door and enter the ministry center. Without the right key, you can't open the door. Jesus said to Peter, I'll give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. These keys open the kingdom to people. They lock and unlock. Peter took those keys, the gospel keys, and on Pentecost, he opened the door to God's kingdom. And 3,000 people that day came into the kingdom by believing the gospel. But listen, not everyone at Pentecost that day believed. Those same keys that opened the door to some locked it to others. You see, your response to the gospel of Jesus Christ will determine your destiny. To those who did not believe, the door was closed and locked and they did not enter in. Your response to the gospel determines your eternity. The gospel of Jesus Christ is the key to God's kingdom and there are no other keys. Folks, there is, as we sang earlier, one way. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but through Him. The gospel of Jesus Christ is the key to God's kingdom and there's no other key that fits the lock. And the lock that keeps you, that keeps me, that keeps us all out of God's kingdom is sin. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Isaiah said, your iniquities have separated between you and your God and your sins have hid his face from you. Listen, the door to heaven, the door to God's kingdom is locked by your sin. And there is only one key that will fit that lock and open that door. Religion will not open it. You can join this church 15 times. It won't open heaven to you. Religion will not open the door. In fact, religion turns people away from faith in Jesus Christ. The Muslim view of Jesus is that he was a prophet, inferior to Muhammad, that he was not crucified and did not rise from the dead. The um, Mormon view of Jesus is that he was the spirit brother of Lucifer. A council of gods determined that Jesus should be selected instead of Lucifer to be the redeemer of the world. Jehovah's Witnesses teach that Jesus was a created archangel by the name of Michael and that he is not God manifest in the flesh. He is not the Christ, the son of the living God. Hindus teach that Jesus is one of many Ishtas. An Ishta is a form of the divine. They rank Jesus among other divine forms such as Rama, Krishna, and Buddha. The Buddhists believe that Jesus was a wonderful man, an enlightened man, but not the Son of God. Listen, every religion of the world, they all agree together that Jesus is not the Christ, the Son of the living God. And that breaks the heart of God who sent Jesus and His love to save mankind from our sins. Verse 20 says, And Jesus charged His disciples that they should tell no man that He was Jesus the Christ. This seems kind of odd. He's just told them He is the Christ. He is the Son of the living God. And then He says in the next breath, Don't 
say anything about it. Don't tell people I'm the Christ. That's kind of odd. But you see, the Jewish people to whom Jesus was ministering were not ready for this. They had already rejected Jesus as the Messiah and would continue to do so. They rejected not only who Jesus was, but because they rejected who he was, they were not ready to receive what he was going to do. Jesus has his own timetable and his plan to take the gospel to the Gentile world. In Matthew 28, he tells these disciples, go to all the nations, all the Gentiles, and make disciples and baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost and teach them all the things that I have commanded you. And here in verse 21, it says, from this time forth, till, in other words, from here to the cross, Jesus began to tell his disciples that he was to go to Jerusalem and suffer many things of the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and raised again the third day. He is preparing them five times between now and the cross. He will tell them that he's going to die and rise again. Listen, this is the gospel, folks. The gospel of Jesus Christ. He's not telling them here about uh, the, the golden rule or the Ten Commandments or, or the, even the great commandment. He says, I'm going to die and raise from the dead. This is what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15 is the gospel. He says, I declare unto you the gospel of Christ. That Christ, that's who he is, died. That's what he did. Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures and was buried and rose again the third day according to the scriptures. This is what Paul says is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes. This is why he came. Christ, who he is, died and rose again. That's what he did. J. Vernon McGee said that these two truths were the most important truths for people to know and understand. Who Christ is and what he did. This is how Christ builds his church. Through his gospel, through his death, burial, and resurrection on the third day. Look at verse 22. Peter then took Jesus and began to rebuke him. Now, I hope... I don't guess it really matters, but I hope he pulled him aside and did this. I mean, it's bad enough to make a fool of yourself, but to make it in front of all your best friends. I mean, that's even worse. This is one of the dumbest things Peter ever said, and, and, and Peter said some dumb things. I often feel like Peter. Uh, and he pulls Jesus aside here and says, no, 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 no. You're not going to die at Jerusalem. We're setting up the kingdom. You are the Christ. You're the Messiah. I just said so. You just blessed me for saying so. No, no, no. This isn't going to happen. But what does Jesus say back to Peter here? Get behind me, Satan. Jesus wasn't messing around here. He wasn't fooling. He wasn't kidding. He calls Peter Satan. Folks, opposition to the gospel of Jesus is satanic. Anyone who opposes who Jesus is and what Jesus did is under the influence of the devil. The gospel of Jesus Christ is the only message this world must hear. 
Listen, uh, I've had people recommend shows and books and stories and films. Say, oh, you got to see this film. You got, oh, you got to read this book. And 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 some of them have been great suggestions, and some of them eh, maybe not so great. But listen, you can live and breathe and die and never see the greatest movie ever made, whatever that is. And you're not going to be the worst for it. But if you live and breathe and die and never hear the gospel of Jesus Christ, you will be the worst for it. Anyone who opposes the person of Christ, who he is and what he did, is satanic in their doings. The gospel of Jesus Christ is the best thing that ever happened on this earth. Listen, I I never understood as a child growing up why they called it Good Friday. I always thought, well, what's good about it? I mean, they took Jesus and they stripped him and they nailed him to a cross. What's good about that, Paul? And then I realized, I said, well, it wasn't good for him. It sure was good for me. John, that's where I got in. You see, he took my place. Connie, he died for me. Brett Haas. On 13th February, 1968, that message, that gospel reached me. And I found out that God so loved Brett Haas that he sent his only begotten son that whosoever, Brett Haas, if you will believe on him, you'll have everlasting life. And I put my faith in Jesus that day. The gospel of Jesus Christ is the only message that everyone must hear. God's love for us was demonstrated on a cross where Jesus died for our sins. First John 4.10, he says, herein is love. You want to know what love is? He said, this is it. That God, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation, the payment for our sins. Verse 24, Jesus comes to his disciples here and says, If any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whosoever will save his life shall lose it, and whosoever will lose his life for my sake shall find it. Notice here he says, Any man, whosoever... The offer is to us all. It matters not who you are. It matters not what you've done. Even Peter, who loved Jesus and followed Jesus, failed Jesus. But Jesus never gave up on Peter. Luke tells us that the Lord said to him, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has desired you to have you, that he may sift you as wheat. But I have prayed for you, that your faith fail not, and when you are converted, strengthen your brethren. Jesus never gave up on Peter. Maybe you think you failed. Maybe you think he's given up on you, but I can assure you, he has not. No one ever cared for you like Jesus. He went to the cross To pay for you. But you say, you don't know how bad I am. You don't know how bad you are either. Cecil John Miller, better known as Jack Miller, was a 20th century American Presbyterian pastor in Pennsylvania. And he was known for two very insightful truths. He would say, cheer up. You're worse than you think you are. Cheer up. God's grace 
is bigger than you think it is. Listen, in Jesus, you're far more loved than you could ever imagine. God loves you more than you can know. And he wants to bless you. And he sent Jesus to die for your sins and raise from the dead. And it starts here by his call. He says, if any man will come after me, let him deny himself. You don't, you won't be perfect at it. It's not denying yourself a Snickers candy bar. You know, I love Snickers. I haven't eaten one in 10 years. I've denied myself Snickers candy bar. But that's not what he's talking about here. It's not denying yourself your favorite this, that, or the other. It's denying yourself who you are, your ego. You have to come to him with abandon. You have to hang on to nothing. You cannot save yourself. You have to call on him like that thief on the cross who couldn't do anything. And I like what, I forget the preacher's name up in Cleveland said. They asked the thief on the cross when he got to heaven, I'll give you the short version. Look it up on Google. It's worth watching. He said, who said you could come here? Do you know what justification means? Do you know what redemption is? Uh, did you get baptized? Did you just, he goes, what, what, what? the angel, I said, well, how did you get in here? And he said, the man on the middle cross told me I could come. Folks, listen. That's how you get into God's kingdom. The man on the middle cross. He died for your sins. The Christ, the Son of the living God. He gave himself for you that you might be saved. Jesus said, deny yourself. Take up your cross. And follow me. It's complete abandon. It's a, you take up your cross, you're not going back. When a condemned criminal was given the order by a Roman soldier to take up your cross, that meant you're not coming back, sir. You're going to die. Listen, we live in an ever-increasing pagan environment. Jesus chose Caesarea Philippi as the place where he would make known to his disciples that he was going to build his church. See, Caesarea Philippi was a very pagan place. You might have called it Sin City in its day. Paganism on steroids. It formerly was known as Panias, named after the, the, the pagan god Pan, the half-human, half-goat. Their worship even involved uh, horrible sexual relations with goats. This was a very pagan society. There was a cave at Caesarea Philippi that was filled with water from an underground stream. The pagan, pan-worshipping people would bring their children and sacrifice them to pan by tossing them alive into the waters beneath. They called the opening of that cave the gates of hell. It was here that Jesus said, Upon this rock I will build my church. We look around us today and I hear people talking about how pagan our society has become and how ever-increasing sin is encroaching in our world. And I think to myself, what a better place 
to build church. A pagan society needs a church founded on Jesus Christ, the Son of the living God. So today as we close and as we partake of the Lord's Supper, I want you to pray before we partake and say, God, I I receive you. If you've never trusted Christ as your Savior, I invite you today to come to Him. Receive Him as your Lord and Savior. And for those of us who have received Christ, let's renew ourselves again to say, Lord, I'll take up my cross. No turning back. And follow you. Father, bless your word today and use it to build us up in the faith. Lord, as we partake of this bread and wine, may we be reminded of your death on the cross, who you are, and what you did for us. We pray this in Jesus' name.